Welcome to episode 109 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. Last episode, we followed Mao and Ju's Fourth Red Army as it broke through the encirclement of the Jingongshan base area and spiraled across southern Jiangxia for a month until it succeeded in ambushing and defeating the army that had been pursuing it. This episode, we're picking up their story. In the wake of their victory in the Battle of Dabodi, the 4th Red Army was badly in need of resupply, as well as rest, recuperation, and a way of mending all the sick and wounded after a month of marching and fighting. Immediate resupply of the army had to take place at Dabodi, but this presented the 4th Red Army with a conundrum. Because it was not an area where there had been the development of mass work with the common people, most of the residents of Dabodi had fled to the hills to escape the approach of the Red Army, scared of the depredations that an army entering their town might bring. The Red Army was badly in need of supplies, but there was no one to trade with or ask for support from because the people had fled. And you might remember from episode 67 that one of Mao's original three main rules of discipline was that, quote, not even a single sweet potato may be taken from the populace. And this, uh, end quote, and this was later changed to don't take a single needle or piece of thread from the masses in the version published in Mao's selected works. Yet, an emergency resupply of some basic necessities was a matter of survival for the communists. What were they to do? The solution that Mao and Zhu came up with was to take the local people's grain, oil, and vegetables and to leave behind IOUs. Naturally, most local people, when they came down from the mountains after the Red Army had departed, viewed these IOUs with some skepticism. But when the Red Army came back through uh, a little more than 50 days later, they went around with silver dollars loaded onto shoulder poles and paying back these IOUs. When the coins uh, didn't match the exact amount owed, overpayment was given and shortchanging the people was forbidden. Uh, this action went a long way in convincing the people here of the basic difference between the communists and the warlord and Guomidong forces that the people had earlier had experience with. The battle at Dabodi had taken place on February 10th and 11th. On February 13th, the 4th Red Army marched north into the county seat of Ningdu County. Here, as the communists approached, the local landlords and the Guomindong garrison forces fled, but the local chamber of commerce took down the Guomindong flag and raised up the red flag, essentially treating the Red Army as, as just another in the long line of warlord armed forces to march through the area since... Uh, since the collapse of the Qing dynasty. Uh, they set up a reception center to welcome the communists and even invited the Red Army leadership to a banquet. I'm curious as to whether they already had a red flag ready somewhere to run up the flagpole, or if they got one from an advance party of the Red Army, or if they just ran a red cloth up the pole, uh, but I couldn't find an answer in the sources that I have here. Anyways, after occupying the city, Mao declined the offer to join the Chamber of Commerce in a banquet, instead submitting the following fundraising letter in reply. Quote, the Red Army 
is an army that strives for the well-being of the workers and peasants. It also makes every effort to protect the merchants. It exercises strict discipline and does not encroach upon anyone. Because of the current shortage of food supplies, we are writing to you now to request that you kindly collect on our behalf 5,000 big foreign dollars for the soldiers' pay, 7,000 pairs of straw sandals, and 7,000 pairs of socks, 300 bolts of white cloth, and 200 laborers. It is urgent that these be delivered to our headquarters before 8 o'clock this evening. We hope that you will do as we request without delay. If you ignore our requests, it will be proof that the Ningdu merchants are collaborating with the reactionaries and are out to make things difficult for, for the Red Army. In that case, we will be obliged to burn down all the reactionary shops in Ningdu as a warning against your treachery. Do not say that we have not forewarned you. The above message is communicated to all the gentlemen in charge of the Ningdu County Reception Center. Fourth Red Army, Juda Commander-in-Chief, Mao Zedong, Party Representative. End quote. I have to imagine that anyone who's struggled with uh, movement fundraising tasks must find this letter to be very gratifying. The Chamber of Commerce delivered all the funds and laborers requested to the military supply section of the 4th Red Army headquarters by 8 p.m. that night. Before marching on from Ningdu, the Red Army opened up the prison and released everyone. Judah declared that crime is a class question, and the prisoners were a combination of political prisoners and poor people who had been locked up for stealing food or clothing. But the Red Army did not stay long in Ningdu. Their destination was Donggu, a place where they could count on local support and get aid for the sick and wounded while they took a little time to make some new plans. Donggu is to the northwest of Ningdu, about halfway between Ningdu and Jian, if you want to look for it on the map of Jiangsha province that I've linked to in the show notes. I've also included another map as the episode artwork that should be helpful. Donggu had its own history of development into a communist space area, with significant parallels with the Jingangshan experience, but also important differences, and so I want to give a little background on this place. Donggu was a village of about 15,000 people, located in a fertile highland valley, surrounded on all sides by mountains. It's near the intersection of five different counties, and roughly 70 miles from each of the seats of those different counties. This distance meant that it was remote enough from the various local county-level seats of power that, in case of any local-level expression of autonomy, it would take some effort on the part of the central power to bring the area back into line. Most people were Hakka, like in the Jingangshan, but about 10% were from the She nationality, which mainly lived as hunters up in the mountains. The biggest landlords, though, were early settler Han people from the Wang clan, who were based in a wealthy village downriver from Donggu called Futian. They owned about 80% of the land. If you want a refresher on the terms early settler, native registrant, and guest registrant from the, for the different Chinese ethnicities in the area, I talked about all that back in the episodes where I gave some background on the Jingangshan back in episodes 63 to 66. In February 1927, 
Some young people who had left the immediate environs of Donggu to pursue an education returned to the area and started the first Communist Party cell there while also helping to form a peasant association. Keep in mind, this was during the time of the United Front government. The Northern Expedition had reached this part of China in September 1926, and peasant associations and the Communist Party were totally legal at that time. In fact, the county magistrate of Jian County was even a communist. Uh, Donggu, though, as I said, roughly equidistant from several county seats, was in the easternmost part of Jian County. Dong, in Donggu, the communists showed a remarkable amount of foresight and decided to keep their party organization secret and conducted their open work through the Peasant Association. This decision would serve them well after the United Front fell apart and the Communist Party became illegal. The slogan that the Donggu communists adopted was All Power to the Peasant Associations, and under that banner, they proceeded to reorganize village life. The Peasant Association organized elementary schools, which were called Lenin schools. It also built and organized a number of local institutions, including a hospital, a pharmacy, factories for repairing farm equipment and making stencil paper, and a post office. Women's choirs were organized to sing revolutionary nationalist songs as a way of incorporating women into the heavily male-dominated peasant movement. Essentially, the Peasant Association gave everybody something to do in reorganizing and improving village life. But aside from reorganizing village life to improve everyone's well-being through cooperative institutions, the Peasant Association was also focused on class struggle. The main target was an obvious one, the Wang landlords from Futian, who owned so much of the land that the Donggu peasants rented. Because this was still under the United Front government, what the Peasant Association initially did was to draw up a list of the crimes of the landlord Wang Chusha and bring them to the communist county magistrate in Jian. The magistrate had Wang seized and thrown in prison. However, he wasn't in prison long. When the division of the National Revolutionary that was garrisoning Jian, uh, which was led by the communist Ye Jianying, was moved to Wuhan, a more conservative division of the National Revolutionary Army was moved into the area, and the commander of that division had Wang Chusha released from prison. By the way, since I mentioned him, this guy, Ye Jianying, would go on in 1976 to be the top military leader during the coup when the Gang of Four were arrested not long after Mao's death. Anyways, we can see that even before the fall of the United Front government, the, com the communist county magistrate's powers were limited by the politics of the local military commander. After the United Front between the communists and the Guomindang collapsed, Wang Chusha worked with this new conservative Guomindang commander to try to crush the peasant associations, while the communists took to heart the call to prepare for and launch armed struggle that came out of the August 7th, 1927 emergency meeting. Uh, we discussed the collapse of the United Front and the August 7th meeting in episodes 53 to 57. In September 1927, the Donggu communists reorganized themselves in order to fit the new circumstances, and this party meeting is usually understood as the beginning of the Donggu Revolutionary Base Area. And in a move parallel to what was happening at approximately the same time in the Jingangshan, 
the communists decided to reach out to a local bandit chief, Duan Chafeng. Duan came from an extremely poor family and had worked as a kid tending to water buffalo before being apprenticed as a tailor, just like our old friend Wang Zuo in the Jingongshan. Duan became known as just an extremely strong guy and became an accomplished martial artist. Eventually, he became a leader in the main local sworn brotherhood, uh, sometimes called a secret society, the Three Dot Society, and he made his living as a bandit. In October 1927, after leveraging family connections between a couple of the communist leaders and Duan Chifeng, the communists were able to found what was called the Donggu Workers and Peasant Army, uh, with about 30 people and 10 guns, most of whom came from the ranks of Duan's bandit gang. When the Guomindong military force that had been garrisoning Jian was moved somewhere else in November 1927, the Donggu communists felt that the opportunity had arrived to launch their own armed struggle, and on November 12th, they launched what was called the Donggu Insurrection. Here's how Joseph Fusmith describes the action of the insurrection in his book, Forging Leninism in China. Quote, on November 12th, Lai, uh, Lai Jingbong, was the leader of the communists, and Duan led 60 people to Futian, where they planned to seize Lai's old nemesis, Wang Chusha. Wang, however, got wind of their approach and fled. Lai and his comrades were nevertheless able to seize Wang's younger brother, Wang Liangzhao, and search his house. They took six rifles and some cash and distributed food and clothing to the peasants. The following day, they went to nearby Yonghowei and beat eight local bullies while seizing over 10,000 yuan. A few days later, they seized more rifles from the self-defense force, uh, the which that means that's the landlord militia, of a town in Jishui County. Collectively, these actions became known as the Donggu Insurrection. End quote. Over the next few months, the guerrilla forces continued fighting and growing, incorporating more communist activists and more former bandits into their ranks. By February 1928, the force had about 150 troops with 80 rifles, and in April 1928, they established contact with the communists in the Jingongshan. Lai Jingbong, the first leader of the Donggu communists, was killed after being captured during fighting with a landlord militia force to the south of Donggu in May 1928. He was replaced by a communist cadre named Li Wenlin. Li was a native of a nearby part of Jiangxia province and was a graduate of the Wampoa Academy. He was serving as an instructor with the Judas army at the time of the Nanchang uprising and participated in that uprising and the ill-fated march south that followed. After the dispersal of the Nanchang uprising forces following the southern expedition, all stuff we discussed in episodes 55 and 71, Li returned to his hometown and involved himself in communist revolutionary activity there. In July 1928, he was appointed secretary of the West Jiangxia Special Committee, and in that capacity went to Donggu and took over the armed forces there. In Li, the Donggu communists had a well-trained and battle-tested leader, who, although an outsider to the specific Donggu area, was from not far away and was also Hakka, and was soon accepted by the local people. 
By February 1929, when Mao and Ju's forces arrived in the region, the Donggu forces had grown to about 1,500 soldiers and 800 rifles, and had been reorganized into two regiments, which were called the 2nd and 4th Independent Regiments of the Red Army. Now, although I've been using the term base area for Donggu, and here I'm following the standard convention among historians both inside and outside China, uh, and the internal Communist Party literature after a certain point, it functioned very differently than the Jingong Mountain Base Area. As I mentioned earlier, the party organization was kept entirely clandestine, and one effect of this was that there was no formal establishment of a Soviet government, even though in Donggu and some other villages in the area, the Peasant Association ran all the affairs and functioned under the leadership of the Communist Party. There were two times during 1928 that powerful landlord militia forces invaded and occupied Donggu with the intention of wiping out the communists. In both these cases, the guerrillas withdrew to the mountains, and the absence of formal Soviet government institutions and open party activities minimized the amount of targets for the reactionary armed forces. In the middle of 1929, the Communist Party's hunan Jiangsha Border Region Special Committee sent a delegation to learn more about how the Donggu base area functioned and observed the following. Quote, the reactionary forces have been driven away. All rights belong to us. However, there is neither an overt political power organ nor regular Red Guards. Postal service, commerce, and trade are all carried on as usual. None of the sufferings in the border area exists here. If the enemy troops come, they cannot find any target. The party and mass organizations are entirely secret. End quote. So under these circumstances, while the communists lacked the advantages of formally exercising political power openly, it meant that when the communist armed forces more or less inevitably had to withdraw in the face of superior reactionary armed forces from time to time, that unless the reactionaries were willing to label all of the people in the region as enemies and kill them indiscriminately, that targets could be minimized during periods of enemy occupation. Unlike what we saw in the Jingongshan, where civilian supporters of the communists suffered greatly under enemy occupation. Of course, there are many cases during the course of the Chinese Revolution where we will end up seeing entire populations labeled as enemies and targeted by the counter-revolutionaries as a way of fighting the communists. But at least at this time and in this place, as brutal as the Chinese Civil War was, with heads on pikes and everything, like we've talked about in past episodes, uh, the communists could actually count on the landlord militias in Jiangxia to be more humane than the collective punishment practiced by the militaries of some of today's liberal democracies. So this has just been a little background on this place, the Donggu Revolutionary Base Area, that Mao Zedong and Judah decided was where they should retreat to in order to recuperate and form some new plans after the beating they had taken while retreating from the Jingongshan. There were only five footpaths leading up through the mountains to Donggu, and Li Wenlin came down as Mao approached in order to lead the 4th Red Army through the mountains and up into the base area. Judah described the arrival of the Red Army to uh, the base area to Agnes Smedley like this. Quote, 
The mountain was part of a forested range that stretches north and south through Jiangsha. It was in a high mountainous area, but not as impregnable as Jingongshan, he said. Narrow trails led up over its four levels, and on every hand were forests of spruce and fir, flowering bamboo, shrubs, and in the spring and summer, wildflowers in great profusion. Near the summit was a broad and fertile plateau dotted with small villages and with the market town of Donggu near its center. In the fertile, ver- fertile valleys that poured onto the plateau were other small villages. End quote. All right, next episode, we'll pick up the story here and talk about the Fourth Army's time in Donggu and watch them move on from there. Until then, be well.